So the book of Judges. <clears throat> so this is the fourth time that we have gone through the book of Judges. So um, you know, we, this will be the, the third time we've actually taken like a, a slow survey, a slower survey attempt. We did it in one night. So that'd be the, the, one of the four. But uh, we're going to cover chapters one through three as the plan and uh, just kind of get us into the book. And then we're going to make our way through all of these great um, <clears throat> men and women of, of God that are written of here. And we're going to see some failures, too. Um, the author of the book of Judges, nobody knows for certain. It's not listed in the book, um, like in some other places, you know, written with my own hand, Paul would say. We don't know that, but Jewish tradition holds that Samuel was the composer of the book of Judges. And... Um, uh, as long, along with uh, Ruth and uh, Samuel, all written by him. That's kind of the, the tradition. <clears throat> uh, other people say, no, these are um, individual narratives still inspired uh, by the Holy Spirit. They're individual narratives that was put together and one person stitched them together. Um, I, I tend to lean to the first uh, view, although it certainly can't say with any kind of biblical certainty. But this is what we do know with biblical certainty. It was inspired of the Holy Spirit. So um, we're thankful for all the people that were used to write, but uh, we're most thankful that it came from the Lord. And this is a book that has come from the Lord for us. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> what we're going to see is that this is a time that's going to take us from them coming into the land until the time they get a king. So what happened? So if you were to put this kind of in a question form, if you were to ask the question, well, what happened from the time that Joshua entered the promised land until Israel started having kings? Well, you would want to read the book of Judges. That's what kind of fills in that historical timepiece for us. <clears throat> Do they drive out the nations? Do they keep the covenant? Do they walk uprightly? Um, all of that is what's going to be talking about. Now listen, we're going to read later on, um, the, the prophets are going to begin to talk about uh, great superpowers like Assyria and Babylon um, and, and Persia. Okay, we're, uh, we're going to even have some prophecies about Greece. And these are going to be some of the, the superpowers. This is not so much concerned with superpowers. It's, it's kind of like the warring faction over the hill. Um, and so these are the local powers and, and the conflict that Israel had in seeking to drive them out of the land. And so why would the Lord, I think it's kind of an interesting time in our history, um, why would the Lord drive them out of the land? Here's the reason why. It's because the Amorites had sinned. God gave them over 400 years to repent of their deep wickedness. Um, of child sacrifice, and we, the list could go on, and we've talked about it as we've made our way through, and they did not repent, so God brought the nation of Israel in to bring judgment upon them and to, sorry about that, and to displace um, these uh, nations that were being judged. You're like, well, that just seems like it's unfair. It seems like that's prejudicial. Well, you'll enjoy the read then, because what you're going to find out is that Israel comes under the judgment of these other kings and kingdoms because they were doing the same things that caused the other nations to go. The only difference between those other nations and Israel is God said, when you repent, I'll bring you back. Israel's back in the land, which is interesting 
because they've really not repented of their <coughs> rejection of, of the Lord, the Messiah. And we know that's not going to happen until they are in the land and they're about to be wiped out and they call upon the name of the Lord at the end of the tribulation and then Jesus comes back and rescues them. So, um, yeah, so the Lord kind of, the, in the last gathering of Israel into the land, he does it a little bit differently. He brings them in in preparation for them to repent. So pretty clearly seen as you read through the book of Revelation that that's the way that's going to go. So yeah, so this is a land that God gave them. And um, people can argue about it, and they can fight about it, and they can have opinions about it, but this is what the Word of God says. Which does not mean that Israel can treat poorly, and I'm not saying that they, <laughs> they are. I'm not saying that they're not. But it doesn't mean that they can treat people however they want to. As we've read, you know this, as we've read through the word of God, he says, be kind to the strangers. So it is their land. God's put them there and he put an expectation upon them. Uh, so that's kind of just a, a quick little dive into that. But we've spent a lot of time as we've made it through uh, these opening books of, of the New Testament, <coughs> Old Testament, um, and they're, they're moving into the land. So um, outline... Well, you're going to see Israel's failure in the conquest in these opening chapters uh, tonight. They, they fail to remove the Canaanites. They um, fall into this cycle of apostasy that we'll, we'll note when we get there. Um, they go into apostasy. They go to deliverance. And the way God delivers is that he will raise up a judge that will bring them out. And so we'll read about Othniel and Ehud and Deborah and Gideon, <coughs> Samson, Jephthah, um, 12 in, in all. Uh, that now will take you through chapter 16. Then in chapter 17 through 21, it changes. The book changes. Um, and you've noticed this if you read it before. It, it, you kind of get away from the judges. <coughs> and you just in, enter into some really dark chapters. About, I mean, they're like, these are the, not the chapters you want to read kind of chapters. I mean, it's like disturbing what you see going on. You see a breakdown of religious life and you see a breakdown of social order and it's just their deep failure, the consequences of not following the Lord. So the spiritual state of Israel in this time period is that they fail to conquer the, the land. They do not keep the covenant as they ought to. They um, will have seasons of <coughs> following after the other gods. But the one repeated line as, and it's found in chapter 2, verses, verse 11, uh, chapter 3, verse 7, verse 12, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 6. I know you can't write it down that fast. Uh, chapter 13, verse 1. I just want to give the repetition so you can see. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That is the, the line that summarizes the time period that we're talking about. Everybody did what they wanted to do. Aren't you glad we're done with that and we no longer have those types of attitudes in, um, in beautiful US of A, right? We, we don't deal with those types of things anymore because everybody's like, only Lord, what do you want? Or no, actually, it kind of sounds exactly like us, doesn't it? Don't tell me what to do. I'll do whatever I want. I don't want a God over me. I'll do whatever I want. And so this is, this is pretty contemporary as we read it. Um, so we're going to see idolatry, we're going to see all kinds of failures, but then we're going to see God raise up uh, men and women to lead them back to him.
So that's kind of just a very brief overview of the book of Judges. So let's move into chapter 1, beginning at, uh, well, verses 1 through 20. We're going to see, maybe down to verse 21, actually. We're going to see Judah and Simeon. So these two tribes are going to go and find their allotment of land. And we're going to see them go and fight against the Canaanites. So let's go ahead and read a little bit here. It says, Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? You know, who wants, who's going first? You know, there's all, you all, we all know that kind of like, well, I'm, I'll go. I just don't want to go first. So we're like, Lord, who do you want to go first? And the Lord said, I want you to go first. And um, he'll go up. I'm going to deliver the land into his, <coughs> his hand. <coughs> Now, Judah speaks to his brother Simeon. They had the same mother, Leah. And, and he says, listen, um, and, and if, you, if you have any maps in the back, um, you, you'll see that if you think of like Judah was kind of in the southwest. And in their allotment of land, you're going to see that uh, Simeon has like this little circle, this little region of, um, of land. So they're brothers and they also are in the same relative area. So it makes sense that they would go and they're going to fight together. <clears throat> it says, hey, let's go. You fight for me. I'll fight for you. And um, let's see what the Lord is going to do. Uh, you know, I'd love to, to read. And as I was reading, um, actually, one of my the commentators that I, that I really enjoy reading, um, you know, he actually, he saw fault with this. That, um, that Judah would speak to Simeon and say, hey, let's go fight together. And he says, listen, they didn't believe that the Lord could do it on their own. And first of all, there's no rebuke by the Lord in Scripture for this. There's no other principle that ever comes up later that says it was wrong. Um, I, I kind of disagree with them. I, I just think this, this makes sense. We're brothers. We're in the same territory. Um, let's just go fight together for this. <clears throat> I think it's always a good thing. When the people of God can join together in the work of the Lord. I don't, I don't know why that could possibly be a failure. I just don't see it. Um, uh, but I do respect him. But, but I think this is, this is good. And, and I would even go in the opposite direction. This becomes an example for us. You know, is to call one another into those, those things that God has put before us. That we might be able to, to fight and we might be able to do well. Now, as you go through this, they come and they, they go up against <coughs> um, Lord Bezek, Adonai Bezek, and Bezek. And they, they find him. They um, are able to overtake them. And then in verse 6, we read, um, they pursued him, <coughs> caught him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. <coughs> And Adonai Bezek said, what in the world are you doing? Why would you do this to me? No, that's not what he says. He said, well, I had that coming. That's, that's what verse 7 basically says as well. What can I say? I deserve that. Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Now, I don't think this is right. Because this is not how the Lord told them to deal with their enemies. The Lord <coughs> told them to destroy them. Now, remember, it um, hasn't happened chronologically, but I know you know the story. 
when King Saul um, goes out to battle and he brings back Agag and the Lord comes and he says, what are you doing with him? Well, we got him here. And he says, I don't like this. And now the kingdom is pulled from your hands. So this actually is a mistake. And we know it is because of how God dealt with this type of thing later. He ends up just dying in Jerusalem. So I don't know what it is that caused him to do this. But as you look at this, it's kind of like, well, the Lord told him to utterly destroy them. This is not utterly destroying. This is maiming. This is humiliating. This is maybe even picking up the tactics of the world around and beginning to walk them out. And that's a problem because we're going to see that like one little thread that's going to get snagged that as they begin to walk away, the whole sweater unravels on them. And it just leads to one thing after another. So I, I'm going to say that this was a mistake. It was, you know, the guy understood he had it coming, but it doesn't change the fact <clears throat> that the Lord said to do it a different way. And we have examples of when people didn't do that, how the Lord responded. So he ends up dying there in Jerusalem. Now, uh, as you keep on going, we'll see that in verses 11 through 15, Caleb offers his daughter Aksa for whoever defeats uh, Kiriath Sefer, whoever, see, for whoever can take that town. So um, that's the way it rolled back then, ladies. Um, and I guess, you know, she seemed to be pretty, I mean, as you read the story, she's not bothered by it. Um, so at least she knew she was going to get a brave man. She was going to get a man that had faith, that was willing to step out <clears throat> and do the work of the Lord. And um, she, came from <coughs> she came from a family where dad was a warrior. So she probably wanted to have a warrior. I mean, I, I don't think she probably got something she didn't want here. I, it's like, all right, yeah, going to end up with a warrior like dad. I am okay with that. And so um, there is a man who steps up, um, and his name is Othniel, and he ends up going and defeats you know, this territory that uh, Caleb is talking about. And he gets Aksa uh, as his wife. And then he says, hey, <clears throat> ask your dad for some springs. So in verse 15, she said to him, give me a blessing since you've given me land in the south. So that's in the dry area. Um, and um, Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. <clears throat> now, probably easy for her to ask for this, because who gathered the water back then? The women did. So it's like, hey, you should get some springs. She's probably like, that is an excellent idea. I think I am going to ask for those springs, because I'm going to have to go and collect it. So she, she asks, and, and she is given um, this area. So we see that there is some, some good work that is being done. Um, in the uh, you know in advancing and fighting <clears throat> in verse 19 so the Lord was with Judah and they drove out <coughs> the mountaineers but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron and they gave Hebron to Caleb as Moses had said then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak three giants right so the, the, he's a he wanted the giants he got the giants and he defeats the giants. Some of this is a repeat of what we read about there in uh, Joshua. Verse 21. 
But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So that was their their territory. So the Jebusites dwell in the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So that little phrase, to this day, is not the day that this event took place. It's the day that it was recorded and written. So if it is Samuel, then you understand that Jerusalem was not a a city that they took for their own up until the days of David, right? And we're going to read this later, but but he's like, hey, Jerusalem has never been there. And even as I write, it's still the case. So just kind of an interesting piece. We think of Jerusalem, we think they automatically got it right away. No, it it was a city that came much, much later in their history. And so you just see, um, it talks about (coughs) the house of Joseph and and how they went about, um, you know, obtaining land and building and and, and so forth. Again, um, (coughs) they see somebody coming out of Bethel, and they say, hey, tell us all the secrets of Bethel, and we'll let you live. And so he said, well, here are all the secrets of Bethel. And he goes off, and he um, starts another city named Luz um, that is in the Hittite territory. Again, is that the right thing to do? Um, I don't know. This one's not as easy for me to, to uh, determine, but he was helpful. And I guess maybe like Rahab, all right, then you get your life. Now, verse 27, we read, However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beit Shan and its villages, or Ta'anak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites were determined to dwell in the land. Now, if you ever go into that valley, you'll know why they didn't want to leave. It's incredibly productive and fruitful and beautiful. It was a strategic (coughs) piece of land. (coughs) But that verse 27 says they were determined to dwell in that land. And as you go through this, you you find out that Ephraim and Manasseh, they don't drive them out. Um, And so it came to pass, verse 28, uh, Israel, when Israel is strong, they put the Canaanites under tribute, but they did not completely drive them out. So let me ask the question, who had a greater determination? Who was more determined to keep the land and to do <coughs> what um, they believed to be right, were told to be right? Well, the Canaanites, they're like, we're not going anywhere. But this is what God had called them to do. And unfortunately, the the sons of Joseph here, they were content to let them dwell there. And um, this is not what the Lord had called them to do. And I think it's a great point for us just to stop and ask uh, ourselves, what is my level of determination in following the word of the Lord? You know, the Canaanites are not saved, right? Um, they're not following Yahweh. But they're more committed to their, their causes than Israel was committed to the Lord's cause. And, you know, sometimes we look around and, and it, it seems like that's still going on today. That sometimes unbelievers are more committed to their cause of unrighteousness than the believer is committed to the cause of righteousness. 
And, and they had the strength, but they didn't do that. And may we all just be challenged to search our hearts and ask the Lord, is there anything in my life, Lord, that um, you know, the enemy is more determined to have me keep and compromise with than I am determined to obey you? If so, show me and you know, deliver me from that. <clears throat> now, as you go through the rest of chapter 1, you're going to find that you know, in verse 29, Ephraim did not drive them out. Um, verse 30, Zebulun did not. Verse 31, Asher did not. Um, uh, 33, Naphtali did not. And so you see a lot of them, they're putting them under tribute. They were, they were finding a way. They were making a compromise. And, and the compromise probably sounded like this. You know what? I think I can make this situation work for us. I think I've got a plan. I know the Lord said to drive them out, but I think we have a way that we can actually make this work out really good for us. So they allowed them to remain, and it does not work out because they're going to turn their hearts, and they're going to start worshiping their gods. And this is a sad thing. <laughs> and in verse 35, it says, Yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. They didn't drive them out. They made the compromise. <clears throat> and <clears throat> although we read this and it's like they couldn't drive them out because they didn't have enough strength. <laughs> okay, but does God need a big army and a lot of strength for, you know, for us to have a lot of strength to do what he wants to do? Because if you look at the end of chapter 3, and I'm not even sure we're going to get there, but the last verse of chapter 3 it says, after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad. It doesn't seem like the odds were in his favor, does it? And so God is able to deliver with a few. And this is the problem. This is a problem that is really going on here. They're, they're not determined to do what the Lord wants. Into chapter 2. Yeah, and again, if you haven't been around, I apologize for coughing. I, I guarantee you, I promise you, it bothers me way more than it is annoying and bothering you. Um, but uh, chapter two, and I just kind of titled this chapter, The Danger of Forgetting God. And that's what we're going to read about. <clears throat> Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, the Lord said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land like we're going to put you under tribute. You shall tear down their altars, but you've not obeyed my voice. And then this question I have it underlined in my Bible. Why have you done this? Is it possible? I, I know the answer. I know for a fact it is that you've ever heard the Lord say that to you. Why have you done this? Why have you put your hand on that thing? Why have you gone after that? Why have you not obeyed me in this? I like fully committed myself to you. I said I would never break the covenant with you. That I'd be there for you. And you, you haven't done Why have you done this? What's your reason for not following me? Consequences, verse 3. 
<clears throat> Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. Then they came, uh, called the name of the place, Bochim, which means weeping, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. So <clears throat> they seemed to respond. This is a, so the first generation that had come into the land, obviously, because Joshua is still alive. But I think it's interesting. He says, I'm going to be with you and you're going to drive them out. And then <clears throat> when they stopped stepping into that blessing, into that victory that the Lord was going to give to them that was there, I'm going to drive them out, step into it. When they said, you know what, we're kind of done. We're kind of done driving them out. He says, okay, then I'm done driving them out. I'm done driving them out. So if you don't want to take them out, then I'm not going to take them out either. I'm going to let them serve as a, an instrument of correction in your life. <clears throat> and I, I think sometimes we can look in our own life and we may see examples where we stopped walking in the clear path of victory that the Lord was giving us. And um, it seems so easy. We always assumed that that path of victory was going to be there for us to walk in. And we stopped and the Lord's like, all right, if you want to get snared, then I'm going to let you get snared. And, and, and I think maybe the principle, maybe not perfect example, but I think this is one of those, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump type of a thing. You're going to bring this in. <clears throat> it's going to have a much larger impact than you anticipate. So they, they could anticipate in their disobedience, if it went like this in their mind, they could anticipate in their disobedience, well, we've been driving them out. <clears throat> it looks like this, but we're not going to do that anymore. Therefore, the consequences will be like this. Eh, we can live with that. That's something, all right, so we're being disobedient. But this is what's happened as we drove them out. We'll stop driving them out, and then this will be the consequence. And that's the failure, right? Is we don't anticipate the, you know, the correction of the Lord. We don't anticipate what the, what the, when the enemy gets an upper hand in our life, what that's going to look like. They don't anticipate God saying, I'm done driving them out. I'm going to let them be a snare to you. They're going to be thorns in your side. And, and so how important it is to walk in the things the Lord has given us. So, there are things in all of our life where we can look and say, here's the victory. The Lord gives me victory in this, and I walk in that. And I, um, we, can, we, can just, we can see it before us. I, I, you know, whenever I step into this, the Lord blesses, and it goes so well. <clears throat> you need to keep stepping into it. You need to keep walking into that. Because there's a part that the Lord is doing that maybe you don't fully understand. And you... <clears throat> <clears throat> you may never realize in this lifetime that what God's doing until you stop being obedient in the area of your life where you've been walking. And now all of a sudden, not only do you have to deal with the mess you've made, but you're going to have to deal with the mess the Lord's stirring up in your life. So a little bit of leaven ends up leavening the whole lump. Don't ever think, I'm speaking to myself, may we never think 
that we can anticipate what it's like to compromise and that we can handle it. Because we always, in that moment, are only thinking about what I can see. But what about the God of the universe saying, but now my hands are going to come down on you. And you're like, to deliver me? No, I'm going to give you more of what you're doing. You don't want to drive them out? Then I'm not going to drive them out. You want to play with their gods? Then I'll give you over to their gods. <clears throat> kind of a sobering, it's a sobering verse to read. <clears throat> so <clears throat> let's keep on moving um, down to verse 7. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. Again, a piece of information we got in the book of Joshua. And they buried him within the borders of his inheritance, Timnath Heres, in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gaash. Here it is. <clears throat> Look at this verse. <clears throat> when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor, number two, the work which he had done for Israel. So, this is a problem. <clears throat> it's this forgetfulness that's going to be a real issue. And, you know, the Lord, you've heard it said, has no grandchildren, right? He only has children. And so the Lord wants us all to experience afresh who he is and what he does. Now I'm going to make this assumption that most of you in here know the Lord. You know uh, Yahweh. You know Jesus as your Savior. But do you know the work that he's done are you, uh, are you familiar with the ways and the works of the Lord? And <clears throat> I think, you know, the generation, the elders that are alive, we need to be like living this out in front of you. You need to be able to look at our lives. But let me tell you, there comes a time when you just got to go do it yourself. You're like, well, I've, I've, no, I've never seen this. I've never done this. Well, good news, you have a Bible and you know what to do. So go walk in it. <coughs> well, what if he, is he going to do like the revival of the past? Probably not. But he is still going to work. He is still going to work. And it may be that the revival he wants to do or work that he wants to do um, it would even be greater. But at the, you can be certain of this, is that if you will step out in faith, <coughs> you can experience the ways of the Lord. You don't just have to read the biographies. You don't have to read the scripture and just longingly look back on what God did in, you know, centuries ago. The, God wants you to know him. And he wants you to know what he does. But if you're huddled up in a corner, you know, and not getting to know him and just wishing that you had lived at another time, you're never going to experience a step out into the things of the Lord and watch him show up in your life. Verse 11, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, 
and served the Baals. So this is one of the main gods of the Canaanites. He was one that was seen as the god of, of thunder, and he was a fertility god, uh, providing crops and, <clears throat> um, and all. So this was one of the main gods. So they began to worship them. So this is what happened. Just the Lord says, fine then, I won't drive them out. So this is why putting them under tribute was a problem. Because now their hearts are being turned. <clears throat> In verse 12, it says, And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. They bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashereth. So another this is a fertility goddess. I thought, you know, in the corrupt theology of um, these uh, Canaanite uh, worship was the wife of Baal. But here's the problem when you want to go and study like Baal or study, um, you know, about Ashtoreth. You know, you're going to maybe go in at a particular point in time in history. They have no consistency of truth because it's a false demonic thing. So, you know, you're used to studying, well, I want to study this about the character and nature of God, and it's consistent because he does not change. But when you go and study the false gods of the Canaanites, there's no consistency in the study of it. You find little pieces, but, you know, you're not going to find a great consistency. It's like, well, they said this, but then they say that. And so over there, it's like, oh, that's right, because it's, it's a lie. It's all a lie anyway. So a little lie here, a little lie there. What's the difference? You know, the father of lies doesn't care about that. <clears throat> but um, so they're worshiping, you know, the main god and goddess of the Canaanites. A pretty sad uh, testimony um, of what's going on. Verse 14, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around. So they could no longer stand <coughs> before their enemies. So just what he said, you know, you obey me, you'll be blessed. You don't, then I'm going to send you out of this land that you're going to be overcome by those that are around you. Uh, verse 16, nevertheless, uh, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So it kind of tells you this is what the book is about. <clears throat> Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in their, which their fathers walked. And obeying the commandments of the Lord, they did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of uh, the judge. For the Lord was moved with pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from doing their own doings, nor from their stubborn ways. That is the cycle of the book of Judges right there. Um, so they don't obey. God gets mad. God sells them into uh, judgment. Um, they end up being delivered, but um, they end up going right back to it. And this is the cycle of the book of Judges. So that section that we, we just read right there, it'll come up over and over again. But they were stubborn in their own way. Yeah, that's not hard to relate to, is it? We get stubborn in our own way. 
Well, I just think. Well, I feel. Well, I believe. Well, I had this happen. But what does the Bible say? Well, yeah, but this is my thing. No, no, no. We, get, we must yield to the word of the Lord and his wisdom. If your experience somehow would communicate that following the ways of the Lord is a wrong thing to do, you're wrong. And um, you need to yield to the Lord and trust him and not be stubborn, but to be soft-hearted to this one <coughs> who has loved you and sent his son to die on the cross for you. So this is the, the repeat we're going to read over and over again that continues on through the end of that, that chapter. Now, in, in chapter 3, we start to get introduced to these judges, right? So <clears throat> what we find at the end of chapter 2 is that God is going to use the nations around them to test Israel. And that continues on into chapter 3. <clears throat> so verse 1, now, there were, now these are the nations which the Lord left, <clears throat> that he might test Israel by them, that is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. And so they hadn't fought. They'd never gone through this. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formally known it. And he gives the, the nations that were left behind. And then again in verse 4, they were left that he might test Israel to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. God's in. Now this is interesting. God doesn't know. Omniscient God does not know. No, he knows. He fully knows. But this is going to be an opportunity for them to learn um, before the Lord and the task that he's left behind to say, look, you're following me. You love me. You obey me. You're not following me. You're stubborn. You're disobedient. And this is something that's going to be revealed. So God knows, um, but we don't know. And so, <clears throat> you know, this is the, the language that is used as scripture. And um, I think God is still doing this today. <clears throat> like, why is this thing still in front of me? It's a test. God's allowing that thing to be there so that you might make the right and righteous decision. Why doesn't he take away all of these desires? Just eradicate them all. Because he's a God who believes in tests. And so we must choose to do the right thing. We must choose to stay close to the Lord. Now, in verses 7 through 12, we come to um, our first uh, judge, the first one that's going to um, deliver. <clears throat> so... We read at the end of verse 6, um, they took their daughters uh, to be their wives, and their daughters, uh, they gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. So um, immediate apostasy, <coughs> idolatry, is what's going on. So in verses 7 through 12, um, the, we read that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Right, Number one, uh, there in verse 7, uh, they served these other gods. In verse 8, God got angry. That's point number two in that cycle. And then the Lord sold him into the hand. So now they're going to be oppressed. That's point number three. And then he's going to raise up a deliverer. He's going to show mercy. And then they will be delivered. 
And then in verse 12, and the children of Israel again did evil. Sin, wrath, oppression, mercy, deliverance, return to sin. That's the cycle. And you're going to see it <coughs> as we, we run through this. Um, but the Lord is going to use um, Othniel uh, to overcome the, this king of Mesopotamia. Um, it kind of went up the coast of Israel and across the top, kind of following the Tigris and the Euphrates River. And so the, this is the area we're talking about. And the name of the, this king is uh, Kushan Risha Thaim. And Othniel is going to be used to, <coughs> to bring victory. So verse 11, the land rested for 40 years. And then the children of Israel do evil. Um, in verse 12, and another king is going to rise up and is going to oppress. And his, this king's name is Eglon, Eglon, king of Moab. So as we begin to look at this, this is kind of a, yeah, this, this one, if you've never read this before, you're going to be like, interesting. So let's, let's read this. Um, and the children of Israel, verse 12, again, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so Eglon, king of came up against them. Verse 13, then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek, went and defeated Israel, and took possession of the city of Palms. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. That's how long they were under oppression. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera. The Benjamite, a left-handed man, just in case you're wondering, it comes into the story later. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute <coughs> to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud made himself a dagger. It was a double edge and a cubit in length. This is a big knife. And fastened it under a cubit's 18 inches. So, yeah, just go from, you know, here it is. You know, right? There's, there's your cubit, right? This is, this is a big... It's not a pocket knife, okay? This is a big knife. And he fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So he's left-handed on his right thigh. That's, you kind of, you'll, you'll see where this is going. So he brought tribute to the king, uh, to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Um, there's not a lot of spiritual significance to that, Okay. It's just one of the details of somebody talking about a, um, you know, bringing, bringing the guy down. <coughs> um, maybe they're tying that together with the length of the dagger. And when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people <coughs> who carried the tribute. But he turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, really? <laughs> keep, keep silence. And all who attended went out from him. So um, Ehud wants this guy by himself. So Ehud came to him. Now he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber, which some would say, yeah, this he's probably on the toilet. Then Ehud said to him, I have a message from you from God. So he arose from his seat. Then Ehud reached with his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. 
Even the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. <coughs> you know who's telling the story, right? I mean, there's only one guy that can tell you that what happened here. And he says, and he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. So Ehud went through the uh, porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. And we had gone out. Eglon's servants came to look. And to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. He's going to the bathroom. Open, you know, knock on the door. I'm not knocking on the door. You knock on I'm not knocking on the door. So they waited till they were embarrassed. And still he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore, they took the key and opened them. And there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Sierra. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet and the mountains of Ephraim and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains and he led them. Then he said to them, follow me for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. Because <coughs> you called out to him, right? And so what we read, so... You know, when they cried out to the Lord, verse 15, he says, well, the Lord heard you. He's delivered you. Then he said to them, follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, in your hands. So they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land had rest for 80 years. So 18 years under uh, oppression, 80 years of deliverance. So this is, this is what we're going to continue to read over and over again of their disobedience, God's faithfulness. Um, we already read verse 31. Shamgar was the son of Anath who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he, was, and he also delivered Israel. So, you know, you read that account and you compare it as we did with the sons of Joseph who said, well, we're not strong enough, so we'll, we just won't drive them out. Okay, we're strong enough, but now we're going to put them under tribute. Which, interestingly enough, the Lord's like, oh, you like putting people under tribute? I'm going to put you under tribute. What you have sown, you're going to reap. You've sown these seeds of disobedience, and you're going to reap that kind of disobedience in your life. So Shamgar, <clears throat> we don't know much about him at all. Here it is. And he was quite a warrior. He was quite a fighter. And God gave victory. He's kind of like Samson-like a little bit here, isn't he? I mean, just like, wow, you did what? 600 people with a, you know, an ox goad? <clears throat> was this a rapid-fire ox goad? I mean, what, what was this thing? I, I think we miss the point if we try to think about the skill of this man or the weapon and how sharp it was. I think we totally missed the point. The point is that when somebody yields himself to the Lord and God will bring deliverance through a single individual. He doesn't need an entire army. And this is often the why, you know, we are discounting ourselves from being used by the Lord because we think, I don't have enough skills. All I've got is one ox goad. But one ox goad in the hand of a man or a woman yielded to the Lord who has a mission that he wants to accomplish, it's pretty dynamic. And there's nothing he can't do. He actually gets more glory, doesn't he? 
<clears throat> Shamgar's account really to me is more impressive than, and I'm not trying to take away because both of them are the works of the Lord, than Ehud's long explanation of the fat guy story. All right? I, I, I look at Shamgar, I'm like, really? Like 600 people? And, and so the Lord doesn't need much. He just needs <coughs> us to yield to him, to do what he calls us to do. And of course, today, um, there's, the Lord is not in the business of sending us out to go get land and fight wars. What he says into right now is to go capture heart men, to be fishers of men, to go capture their hearts, to edify each other. So this is what the Lord has called us to be a part of. And what a great time it is to be alive during this age of grace, right? And I mean, listen, God had these different eras in which he was working, these different dispensations. And I don't want to say this one's greater than that one or whatever. But, you know, I'm, I'm really glad to be alive during this age and this dispensation of grace. Because I'm not called to go out and kill people. You know, that's not the mandate for me trying to establish, um, you know, land and for God to judge the sin of others. Well, you know, the Lord has taken the judgment for that sin in his own body. He died. And we just get to go out and proclaim the good news. I think we have a much greater um, day to be alive and proclaiming than um, even this day. Although I'm not trying to diminish what God was doing. <clears throat> But let's just close in prayer. Let's, 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 let's close and just, if there's things that we are stubborn about. Every, you know, maybe somebody even told you that today. You are just so stubborn and you just will not yield to the things of the Lord. I think the Lord is speaking to you. Don't be stubborn anymore. Be soft-hearted and yield Father, we thank you that you're patient. We thank you that you're kind and generous towards us. You see it even <coughs> in this book. We're going to see over and over and over again that they turned away from you. You oppressed. They turned back and you rescued. Thank you for that model of mercy that you continue to reach out. But Lord, we want to be faithful in our day. We want to be a generation that is walking obediently. We want to be that generation that knows you and knows your ways. So, Lord, we step, in, we step forward and we, we seek your face. And we also say, Lord, what do you want to do? Lord, we want to know you. <clears throat> and we want to know what you want to get done for your glory and honor in this hour. And we surrender ourselves to you and say, Lord... Here we are, send us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.